0: Do you remember those uh, finish the pattern questions on standardized testing, or maybe you took an IQ test before or something like that? Do you enjoy those? I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? I've got an example for you up here. So it's, it's the, the whole thing is like you look at the sequence of, of pictures on there, and you figure out which pattern comes next. That, and I know you guys weren't expecting a test this morning, but we've got a little pop quiz for you this morning. So which, which one is the correct next pattern? <clears throat> All right, let's see. You guys were right. The magic circle on the screen says so. Uh, g- great job. So go ahead and give your hand. I just wanted you to start off this morning with just like doing great. So give yourselves a hand, pat on the back. You guys can recognize patterns which is really good. I mean, it kind of separates you from, uh, from the machines, actually, that you can take uh, information, you know, like shapes and colors with lines and stuff and put them together, and you can actually see their correlation. It's our ability to take uh, things that might seem chaotic even or, or pieces of information that don't connect and be able to make logical, reasonable, reasonable uh, connections with them. And So pattern rec- recognition is great. When it works well... We also have this tendency as human beings to uh, to see patterns where they don't exist. There's a word for this and this is your this is your word for the week all right Apophenia is the word and its that's your five dollar word for the week and so I, don't ask me to say it again because I I'll it, you said it only once or maybe I said it twice in first service only once in second service. Apophenia or right, there's twice. Yeah, somebody's keeping track over there. You see patterns where things don't exist. And so that that gets really interesting. Uh, Gamblers do this a lot where they see, oh, you know, the cards are, (laughs) I've lost all my money, but the cards are about to get hot. Like something has to change. There's got to be a pattern. No, it's all random. There's not going to be a pattern there. There's other different types of ways that we do this. Um, It it can kind of look like this. Like in in, uh, 2001, 9-11, people saw Satan's face in the smoke uh, from the towers. Uh, that's not Satan's face. All right. So that's not his picture. Uh, we don't know what he looks like. He doesn't have a Facebook pro- profile. We can't go. All right. But we, we try to, we do these things. We see patterns in that. It's like the man in the moon, that type of thing. Or, uh, we'll do things like this, where this piece of toast, I think it was on eBay for a while. Whose face is on that piece of toast? It's Jesus. How do you know? Did you see his selfies on Instagram or something like that? Like, you know what he looks like? No, you don't know what he looks like. And yet somehow we're like, that's that's Jesus in the toast. Like, that means something. No, no, it doesn't. (laughs) It it doesn't mean anything. You kind of see some patterns uh, where they don't exist. The the most probably impactful uh, part for us or in our lives when that happens is confirmation bias. You're familiar with that, right? Where we take the things that we think and we feel and that we want to be true uh, and we just kind of assume that they are in every piece of information that we read, like we just see it connecting and reinforcing what we already believe and know to be true, right? We do that socially, we do that politically, we do that with religion where, where we're like, oh, this is, this is what I already believe. Therefore, everything that I read, everything that I study, everything that I know is gonna reinforce that. There's, there's certainly never gonna be a moment in my life where where I'm going to be my world is going to be rocked or I'm confronted with a different truth because this is what I feel to be true and this is this is the case right you know, that's not the, you know that's not the case. You know that's not the experience that, that you've had in this life. There have been moments in your life where your world has been rocked when you have been confronted with a different truth than something that you've held on to maybe for your entire life. Where you're confronted maybe if something changes in a relationship or something changes in your job or, or, or something else where you've just known that this, this is the thing that's, that's true, this is how, how this is, and then something different happens to let you know that the whole time you thought this was true, it actually wasn't like this this was alive, it was a facade it, you 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 thought it was, but but things things are different and it 's in this context that Jesus teaches this parable that we 're going to talk about this morning in mark chapter thirteen he 's walking uh, out of Jerusalem with his disciples they 're walking out and they 're looking around and, and they see the temple there, and one of his disciples kind of makes this uh, offhand observation about this, and Jesus response to this. Uh, just kind of rocks their entire world. Everything that they think is true, socially, politically, religiously, spiritually, everything that they think is true is about to be changed by what Jesus uh, says. And so I'm going to start reading in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, and here's, here's what happens. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus replies, You see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So they're looking at the temple. They're walking out of Jerusalem. And here's a model of the temple, the second temple. They're walking out and they're looking at this. And as you would walk out of Jerusalem, you could see from a distance as you're walking up the road, you you would be able to see the structure. It would be a magnificent-looking structure. And this is a thing, as a Jew specifically, that is the foundation for your faith. The center of your religious and spiritual uh, reality and power—all of this was represented in Jerusalem, and even more specifically in Temple. This is where you went to worship God. This is where you went to make sacrifice sacrifices. This is the thing that as Jesus is is beginning this rabbinical is part of this rabbinical uh, you know tradition of teaching about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like this is part of the foundation that his disciples are thinking, and Jesus is just ushering in this great new age, this physical kingdom that's going to come where God is, has his temple and it's going to be established and it's going to be amazing. This is going to be incredible. And so one of his disciples just instantly says, look how not that amazing? Like, well, look what God has done. And Jesus, I just kind of imagine as he's walking with them, you know, he, he's walking out and just kind of offhandedly looks over his shoulder and is like, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's not going to be destroyed. And, and they're just kind of left dumbfounded. Kind of silent. Again, like this is the foundation of their socio-political spiritual reality here is the temple. If this is gone, then, then their entire identity as a nation is gone. And so they're a little bit quiet. They're walking out. They're leaving, leaving the city. And we find out as we continue in the chapter that they end up in this plate, place called Mount of Olives. I'm sure part of, part of their thinking was like, Jesus is tired. He's been in Jerusalem. He's been, you know, sparring back and forth with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so he just needs some rest. He needs some food in him. And then he, he, he won't start, you know, he won't keep talking crazy talk. So they get out there and four of his disciples come up to him and they say, Jesus. So you said the temple is going to be destroyed. So, like, what do you mean by that? What, what are going to be the signs of this coming? And, 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 and what are going to be signs? And then how, how are we going to know when all of this is finished? Because that's, kind of that's kind of a significant deal. And so they ask Jesus about this. And Jesus begins to give them an answer. I'm sure that there's hesitation and fear in their voices when they ask Jesus, this question, but there's certainly fear in their hearts as Jesus begins to give them the answer and outlines a future that they aren't sure that they want to even imagine. Jesus begins by describing the rise and fall cycle of nations, the rising of cult spiritual leaders that will rise up and claim to speak in Jesus name, but will deceive others. He talks about natural and unnatural disasters uh, that will come, that will show the reality of a broken world that desperately wants to be made whole. And so he kind of sets the stage and he says, here's, here's what's coming in the future. You guys kind of have this picture in your mind of everything being perfect at the end of my ministry. And everything's going to be hunky-dory, like everything's going to be laid out. It's going to be kind of like heaven on earth. Everything's going to be perfect in your life, but it's not going to look like that. And then he goes into very specific details of what's going to happen in their life. Jesus starts in verse 5 to talk about, here's what's going to happen to you individually As you are sent out and proclaim the gospel to others, you are going to be persecuted. Jesus actually just kind of goes through and starts to describe what Luke records in the book of Acts about the start of the early church and all the things that go on with those early Christians. They're going to be flogged, they're going to be cross examined, they're going to be arrested, they're going to be put on trial, they're going to be betrayed. And in all of this, as Jesus is saying, here are the signs of the things that are to come, the temple being torn down. He says, don't be, don't be worried and don't be alarmed. Okay, thanks a lot, Jesus. Like, that, that's really comforting in this moment. We, we, you said something crazy and mind-blowing to us, and, and your response is, yeah, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. He sums this all up in verse 13 of Mark chapter 13. He says, everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. I'm pretty sure they're sorry they asked. Jesus, you know, you know I, don't, I don't know that they really wanted to know his answer uh, to them. I think at this point, they're probably thinking, maybe we've gotten more than we originally bargained for when we decided to follow Jesus. I mean, great teacher, a lot of wisdom. It made sense to follow him at the beginning, but now, you know, everyone's going to hate, hate us. Like, that, that's exactly what we were going for by following you, Jesus. And then he describes what all of this is going to be the sign of and leading up to. Forty years down the road, the temple is going to be destroyed. And Jesus starts describing this in verse 14 in the following verses. He talks about the the time period and how horrific it's going to be in Jerusalem for them. He describes everything that's going to lead up to that in 40 years. You're going to be persecuted. It's not going to be easy for you. But if you stand firm the end, you will be saved. But... One of the things that you're going to experience before you die is the abomination of desolation. In verse 14 of, of Mark uh, 13, Jesus uses this phrase. Now, for the Jews, when you hear that, like it maybe sounds like a comic book character or something like that. When the Jews heard this, they would, they would think of uh, Daniel in the Old Testament and this prophecy that something horrific Uh, completely changing for the nation of Israel is going to happen at some time in the future. So they hear this and they say, like, this is the doomsday prophecy for them. This is the worst thing that could possibly happen. This is going to usher in like the worst period of spiritual darkness that they could possibly imagine in their lives. Daniel talks about this and we look through history and there are different periods of time where things that look like they could be the abomination of desolation have happened. There's this guy in uh, in 167 BC, named Antiochus Epiphanes, that comes and uh, ransacks Jerusalem, and he comes into the temple. He tries to institute Zeus worship. He actually has pigs sacrificed in the temple, which which was unclean. They weren't even supposed to touch pigs as as Jews. He put his own priests in place in that, and it was it was terrible. He killed people. He ran them out. I mean, this is this was as bad as it was going to get. They thought, man, if ever there was an abomination of desolation. This was going to to be it. But Jesus starts to describe something that will be worse than anything that they've experienced up to this point and anything that they will experience in the future, and that's Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. It will be gone. It won't ever come back again, and their national identity will be gone forever forever. Spiritually speaking, when it comes to the temple and, and what was wrapped up into that, everything is going to change. And in AD 70, this happens. Jerusalem is surrounded by the Roman Empire. They're sieged, and, and the temple and the city is destroyed. You can go over right now and look at the ruins that are left there, of the stones of the temple and the walls that were there that were thrown down. And Jesus describes all of this happening 40 years before the time. Um, Roman historian Josephus describes the desolation that happens in his uh, historical writing, Wars. And I I just want to listen, I want you to listen to this description that he gives. He says, during all this time, the people's cries were louder than the fighting. Jewish soldiers tormented citizens for food. Children stole food from elderly parents and mothers stole food from their infants. Remember, they were under siege. They were starving and hungry. There were thousands of crucifixions as the Romans came into the city. There are horrid descriptions of the famine and piles of dead bodies. There was cannibalism within the city. Uh, There's a report of a mother consuming her own baby because they were so hungry. Jerusalem was burned. There were false prophets that went around and gave false hopes, saying God would save them. There was so much blood in the streets that fire, the fire was quenched by it. Josephus says that 1,100,000 people died and 97,000 people were taken captive and sold into slavery. And every stone was torn down except for a few notable towers. As Jesus is finishing this description, my guess with the disciples is is you could hear a pin drop. Jesus has just described everything that they've held dear in their life, being destroyed and desolated and, and it never coming back. And I imagine for them, it's similar to ways that, that I know I've felt in the past and maybe a, a way that you can relate to as well, that there are times in our life where we come up against the things that happen to us, the experiences that we have, and we enter into this period of spiritual depression and spiritual darkness and spiritual decimation. And we look at some of the things that have happened in our lives, we look at the th- some of the things that we've done, some of the things that have been done to us, and we think, man, how... How could it ever get any better from this point forward? Because this is what Jesus has described to these Jews. They're not Christians yet, right? I mean, he's describing everything that they've ever loved and known their culture just being gone. That everything that was stable was going to be shaken. Everything that that, that had insulated them from harm up to that point was going to be crumbled. And I'm sure that they felt in that moment that Man, there's nothing left after that, Jesus. You're you're describing the end of 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 everything, and yet, and yet he doesn't stop there. The parable that he shares in Mark chapter thirteen, verse twenty eight through thirty, is about the destruction of Jesus, uh, of not Jesus, destruction of Jesus, the destruction of Jerusalem. Make sure you get that one right because that'll be important later. So he says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening... You know that it is near, right at the door. You see persecution is happening in the church. You see that you're coming up to this time. Rome is going to surround. All these things are going to happen. Like you know it's coming, so be prepared. He's letting them know ahead of time. Hey, I'm, I'm giving you, I'm giving you a heads up that this is coming. This is going to happen. So recognize the pattern. Recognize the signs. Be prepared in this moment. But he doesn't stop there. He he goes on. He says, Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So forty years down the road, within a generational time, as they would have thought about it and understood of it, that that was going to happen. And it did happen, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just give them a heads up and he doesn't just answer the question the disciples asked. He also gives them the answer that they need to know. And it continues on and says in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He said, everything in your life may seem like it's crumbling down around you and being destroyed and that there's going to be nothing left to do anything with after that. But, but what you need to know and understand is that what I, my promises, the promises from God, what I have to say, that's never going to pass away no matter what happens around you. In the verses right before this parable, Jesus uh, uses prophetic apocalyptic language from Isaiah to summarize everything that's going to happen after this destruction of Jerusalem. And here's what he says. He says, in those days, after the destruction of Jerusalem, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And he describes the rise and falls of nations and empires. As Isaiah is writing this, this is what he's talking about. And this is the cycle that we see. We can look throughout history, the rise and fall of nations and empires, seats of power changing, and the same old thing happening and continuing through. But he says, at that time people will see, so at the end of all this cycle, at the end of all these things continue to go, go on, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. And what he doesn't leave his disciples with is just this story of like, hey, you know, following me is going to be the end of everything that you ever held dear in your life. He doesn't stop there. He continues on. And what he says is with God, you might think the end of things is the end, but the end is really only the beginning. So that, that, that's true with, within our life when something doesn't go well or we lose something or it's gone forever. It, it's, it's just the start of something new. And the same thing when it comes to how we live our life and think about it in terms of, of our end. Like a lot of times we approach death with this, these ideas of, of fear, of trepidation. Like it makes us nervous. I, I don't want to die. Like I'm not going to look forward to that. It sounds kind of morbid, right? But we handle death in such a funky way even as Christ followers when we consider things in light of what Jesus has to say about our end, is that that when he comes back, our end is just the beginning. It's the beginning of the life that he wants to share with us forever. The life that he originally wants for us that we kind of messed up with our sin. And as the disciples are hearing this, and I think what's true for us as the disciples are experiencing this, is that your entire world may seem like it's crumbling down around you, and it may seem like everything that and, and may not just seem that, it may be actually true, that everything that you once took it for granted is now gone and taken away. Your whole world, your whole heaven and earth, might be gone, but that's not the end of the story. There is always hope on the other side. Because God has already won the victory. That there are going to be seasons in life when you have this type of trouble and have this type of spiritual dr- darkness and dryness, but that's never the end. It's only the beginning of something something else, something new that God wants to do in your life. You might lose your country. You might lose your freedom or your job or your money or your cars or your family or your spouse or your child. You might lose yourself. You might experience the worst tragedies that you could possibly imagine, or not even imagine, but even on your most ruined and darkest day, that season will always change into something better. Those experiences, those things in the past, those are the things that are going to be destroyed and done away with because God is going to do something new and something that will never fail. In the midst of the most unspeakable tragedy in our lives, Jesus' words will never fail us. And here's why that's true. No matter what destructive experience you've had in this life, there is nothing that can compare with the destruction that our sin has caused for us. And and not not just physically and the physical reactions uh, uh, of that, but the spiritual consequences of our sin has separated us from our creator, the God of the universe that we're to hold in awe and glory. And that is the only spiritual darkness that holds any sort of true significance in our life. And that's already been taken care of. Jesus has already won that victory. So one of the reasons that we know we have hope no matter what we might be going through in this moment in our life is that The victory over sin and death has already been won by Jesus. The temples that we've erected, the things in our past that are destroyed, the things that maybe we even look back nostalgically on, or the things that we look back and think about the pain, the shame, and sorrow that all those things held for us, that's all washed away in the blood of Jesus. And despite being in the cycle of fallen nations and empires and rising powers, and despite the grief of a sin-broken world and a sin-broken life, Jesus teaches us that faith and trust in him, even through the darkness, will always bring us into the light. Mark 13 is not the only place that Jesus has talked about these types of things. In John chapter 16, he shares this in verse 33 with his disciples. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. I'm sure initially they're thinking, I don't feel very peaceful knowing all this is coming. He says, I've told you all these things that you may have peace. In this world, you are going to have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so long story short, as Jesus shares this parable... He says that eventually everything we build up will be gone, but what Christ does in us will never die. Here's what that looks like practically. Uh, the Christian historian Eusebius writes the history of the church and them leaving the city of Jerusalem before all the events of AD 70 happen. He talks about the city, the town that they go to, and they escape Jerusalem as a result of that. And you know what happens? They lose everything, they lose their house, they lose all, all the items that they had, their furniture and all that kind of stuff, but the gospel spreads. This, this idea of what we're supposed to rest in and, and have our hope in, the all and glory of Jesus' return is what sustained them to be able to share that same joy and good news with others, even in the midst of their spiritual darkness despite what they're experiencing. Instead of being overwhelmed by their circumstances, their faith caused them to follow the words of Jesus. Instead of holding on to their past, they moved forward to what God had for them next. And I can't help but think that a lot of times that we're in a a period of spiritual dryness or spiritual darkness or whatever you want to call it in our life, a lot of it has to do with us wanting to hold on to the things that God wants us to let go of so that his light can break in and break forth in the darkness in our lives. So the disciples as Jews, they wouldn't want the temple to be torn down, but that's exactly the imagery, that's exactly the thing that needed to happen for them to understand what God was doing through Jesus. He was breaking down the barriers that separated us. So I just want to ask you, like, what, what pattern, what signs you see in your spiritual life right now? Like, Where, where are you in that? The result of the truth of God in our life is meant to call out the darkness that we experience so that we can have peace despite the trouble that we face and courage because our sin has been overcome by the cross. And so, like, where, where is your, where's your heart spiritually? Like, where is the Holy Spirit leading you in that? Are you, are you staying in that? Are you wallowing in that darkness, your own confirmation bias? Or are you living in the truth of God's Word and what Jesus has done on the cross. Think of it this way, like when were you last in a period in your life where you able to remove the distractions and all the concerns and stuff that are on your shoulders in this life, take a morning or take an afternoon or take a day to go somewhere else and just be in the presence of the awe and glory of the second coming of Jesus as we look forward to and hope and joy that he is coming again soon and all this pain, shame, sorrow, these tears are going to be washed away. So that, that's one of the things that we try to accomplish every week at Velocity by taking communion. B- because the, the picture, the, the reality of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the, on the cross gives us the knowledge that our hope and joy is built on something that is true and that it is real, and that it can be lived out and change our lives and can change the lives of other people. That's, that's why we share in this time of communion with each other every week. That's why we take a moment to pause and, and just be in the presence as God is with us in this place, be in the presence and recognize the joy and hope that Jesus gives us through the awesomeness of of the cross and the resurrection. Let's pray. God, we ask that um, as we worship you that, that not only is it pleasing, but that that we allow your Holy Spirit to lead us into a life that rejects spiritual darkness that sometimes we hold on to and can't let go of and, and chooses the light of Jesus. God, strengthen us and give us the power to do that through your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for what Jesus has done for us on the cross and help us to live a life that is in all of that. Help us to live a life that that glorifies that rather than anything else in our life. That we give our time and attention on what you have already done for us, the victory that you have already won. Give us the strength to live it out in Jesus' name.